Uh, m- hi, hi. My name's Mark Grist. I-, I used to be an English teacher. I'm approaching middle age, and I really want to learn how to rap. Last time on Mark Can't Rap. Uh, perhaps you could sort of take it on the chin. Could I somehow gain hope, actual hope from Cameo? Peace, Mark. This is Charlie Tuna live and direct. Rap has taught me about me. You know, it's very rare that I'm just constantly creating for myself in a silo, in isolation. Hey, yo, this is the one and only R.A., the rugged man, chilling with my boy Mark Grist. You got to pray. You got to have your faith. You know what I mean? This is when God sends the test on you to see who's going to fold. Are you going to fold? Or are you going to keep it going? And then talk about you not folding when you come up out this dump. You know what I mean? I think that's the best choice right there. Okay. So it's a Monday evening, and I'm setting up for an interview with author and teacher Jeffrey Bocci. I can't wait. We've got a lot in common, Jeffrey and I. We both taught English for years, we both write in our spare time, and we both spent some time documenting the art of rap. For me, that's mostly been through this podcast. And for Jeffrey, it's mostly been through his book Hold Tight, that came out in 2017. Hold Tight is a book about Jeffrey in many respects, about being black and British and born in the 80s. But the real star throughout the book is music, specifically grime. In Hold Tight, Jeffrey explores over 50 key tracks that make up Grimes' DNA. Throughout the book, he breaks down why each track has been so vital to UK art and culture. Here he is, talking about it. When you're looking at hip-hop, you're looking at human creativity, like, at its, at its core. Because it starts with nothing. It starts with old, old records getting just, like, remixed live in makeshift equipment into a whole new feel from people that have got nothing like that's the start of it and every iteration of hip-hop is like some creative like germination let's press pause a second before we can get properly into my discussion with jeffrey we have to take a little detour i first need to fill you guys in on how i first encountered jeffrey's work and how it ties into my own relationship with rap music and in order to do that i have to tell you a story about a teenager called alex Alex, talk us through that moment. Flashback to Glastonbury Music Festival here in the UK in 2019. It was the final day of the festival and a rising UK talent, a young black MC known as Dave, was in the middle of his set. Dave was probably one of the most recognised UK MCs at this point, but even so, this was arguably the highest profile gig of his career. Tens of thousands were watching him from their homes. Now, unknown to Dave and to pretty much everyone else, This young white lad, Alex, was also there. He'd pulled a sickie off work and was balanced on his mate's shoulders as Dave announced that he was going to perform his biggest hit. I want to share a moment with one of you guys on the stage, so... I've got this track called Tiago Silva, Dave had written the track in collaboration with another MC, AJ Tracy, and he asked the crowd whether anyone wanted to come up and rap AJ Tracy's bars alongside Who is sober enough to sing these lyrics along with me? Now these bars are pretty fast, so whoever came up really needed to know what they were doing. Out of everyone volunteering from the crowd, 
Dave opted for Alex. What, do you know the lyrics? Perhaps it was the bucket hat that Alex was wearing that helped him to stand out. He looks like he knows the lyrics. Yeah, let's take a chance in him. Let's take a chance. He's wearing a Thiago Silva shirt. Let's get him up here. And so Alex, totally in awe and perhaps a little intoxicated, clambered onto the stage. Wow, that's a heavy stage. How's he going to go? What did he say to you? He just looked, said, if I need any help with the lyrics, just look him in the eye. And he just grabbed me and said, you can do this. It was really supportive. All right, let's go. The beat kicked in and they Let's fucking go. smashed it. Alex belted out his side word perfect. And as this happened, the nation, for a brief moment, fell in love with Alex. He must be, like, having the, the dream of a life now, aren't he? How many followers have you now got? Uh, just hit 100,000 on Instagram. From <laughs> how many beforehand? 1,000. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, he appeared on the front page of pretty much every national newspaper. And he was also invited the following week onto Good Morning on ITV to join Susanna Reid and Piers Morgan and to talk about what had happened. Here we go. Can you wrap us out? Come on. Can mate. you wrap us out? Let's have a bit of rapping, um, Alex. Cheeky yeah. little microphone here. Obviously, okay. bear in mind, you know, okay. there are children watching. Oh, yep. You are one. So, come on. <laughs> yep. Right. Go. Now, yeah. Santan from the footbook, ex-AJ. Mama stick with a pen like JK. True say I ain't really a drinker, but I got love for brandy like Ray J. Nailed it. Brilliant. Nailed it. Yeah. I've got to say, though, <laughs> I think it's all about the hat for you. I remember feeling disappointed by the interview. I feel like we get a lot of negative stories in the press about rap and about young MCs. And I don't know, I find Dave really inspiring. As a young writing talent, I'm really impressed by his work. I perhaps naively hoped that this would be a chance to celebrate Dave and AJ Tracy's music and the culture that led to this feel-good moment for the country. But instead, the whole focus was on Alex this unlikely hero, how he'd stepped into Dave and AJ Tracy's world and had come back victorious. At the end of the segment, Alex was made to rap the bars again, a cappella this time, as Piers Morgan bopped about, waving his hands and just taking the piss, really. The whole thing was a million miles away from the authenticity and warmth that I'd seen on stage. Now, it turned out that Jeffrey had written an article about this interview for Huck magazine. It was the first time I'd encountered Jeffrey's writing, and I thought he summed up the moment pretty well. As Jeffrey put it, there Alex was, surrounded by the faces of middle-aged, middle-class, middle Britain, forced to recite AJ Tracy's bars a cappella, like some kind of quaint novelty act. As Alex stumbled through the rap this time over studio silence, Piers Morgan did some kind of cringy mock urban dancing directly to camera in the cold glare of early morning breakfast television lights. It was both painful and joyless. Jeffrey also posed some interesting questions. Would this have been such a big story if Alex had been a black kid doing the same thing? Would we still have seen him as this underdog hero of the hour? Would there have been any novelty value in seeing a black kid doing what people expect a black kid to do? And this made me think a lot about my own viral story, because I have one. I went viral myself nearly a decade ago for 
rap battling. And on the left hand side, my man's a real interesting cat on the poetry scene. Mark Griss makes a noise. Following a bet with my students, I started wearing the suit that I taught them in to rap battles and competing against MCs. I've been in about 30 rap battles. Normally they've been in bars, clubs and music festivals. I've won a few and I've lost a few too, but this one battle against a 17-year-old MC called Blizzard, it went viral. You knobhead, I hope you drop dead. If I punch you in the face, who are you going to call? Offstep? <laughs> it gained over five and a half million views on YouTube alone, which was a lot. Way more views than all of my poetry had got combined at the time. It, it became the most viewed UK versus UK rap battle ever. You wank off in sandals to pictures of Gandalf. You stack with a max in your porn stash. He's got a hard on for wizards. He only called himself Blizzard because that's the company that made World of Warcraft. <laughs> in the days that followed, I became sort of famous. People started recognizing me around the city. My barber chased me down the street at one point and thanked me for letting him cut my hair, which was odd. My Twitter was flooded too. I received over a thousand public tweets or messages every day. Everyone wanted to book me or interview me for their TV or film projects. I was about as shocked by it all as Alex was, I think. And it was good in a way. It led to lots of work opportunities, but here I was, a white, middle-class English teacher, a representative of education and the mainstream, getting involved in rap, stepping into that world. That story was so unusual that it became newsworthy on a national level. Why exactly? Was I the Alex of this situation? Something in the pit of my stomach churns whenever I think, Jeez, what if I was the Piers Morgan? Yeah, of course, everyone saw it. What are we talking about? Back now to my chat with Jeffrey. I was, I enjoyed it. Like, I, 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 like, loved the sense of, well, actually, if I'm being really honest, what I loved was that I knew that whoever this Mark Grist was, that he was obviously speaking the language of this community. Like, that's the thing that I loved the most because I know that you can't fake that. Like no matter what the tribe is, you can't, no matter how powerful you are, you can't just plonk yourself into it. You've got to be on some level sharing some kind of values. And I'm thinking that that's what I responded to because I could see community happening. So I wasn't so fussed about the, the novelty of it or the kind of like, Oh, this is like, really edgy or you know I, I, I always just like say oh, it's it's cool to see this person I don't know you you know sort of being part of this community you know what I loved it hanging out with other battlers such a range of people from so many different backgrounds we'd tear into each other then grab pints afterwards we chatted about rhymes and angles and battle strategies. We sent each other birthday presents, helped each other out with our projects. I even had a bunch of battlers come to my wedding. 
feels like a different world away. And not just because of COVID either. These days I don't battle. I miss it a lot. But I didn't like how noisy it was when it got viral. Or how little control I had over the narrative. When people just see a rap battle, this kind of conflict between two characters, a lot of people put their own story on it. I noticed a lot of people from outside of this scene were celebrating my victories as though I was teaching these guys a lesson, um, which was never the case at all. I was always there to learn. Maybe I'll go back sometime. I miss it, but for now, this podcast just feels like a way for me to keep learning, but also keep control of my own narrative. Anyway, it was through Jeffrey's writing on Alex that I came to learn about his work and his book, Hold Tight. I couldn't believe it when I first picked up a copy. It was like the perfect reading list for anyone studying rap. In breaking down these 50 tracks, Jeffrey had done all the hard work. All you had to be willing to do was listen. Having enjoyed the book so much, I'm really keen to know about Jeffrey's earliest experiences of rap. When did rap first mean something to you? That's a really, that's actually quite a hard question to answer because it feels so integral to my sense of self. Like every time I start writing about my identity or even like where I place myself culturally, I very quickly start rounding back to hip hop and lyricism is a big part of that. The earliest I can remember, it was the fascination with the words themselves, which is interesting because there was a lot of music growing up because I grew up in Brixton in South London and I'm not Jamaican, but the Jamaican community was massive. So there was always a lot of like reggae, a lot of dance hall that was just like swirling around. So I grew up loving all of that stuff, even though it wasn't in my house. Um, And then beyond music, it was the fascination with words. So... When I was really young, and I can barely remember it, but I always talk about it. I remember like basically copying poems, right? By That's poets. Interesting. That, oh God, I can't remember who exactly. It might have been someone like Roger McGough or one of these people, you know, um, just who were really like playful with rhyme and like rhyme patterns that just sounded like all bubbly and jubbly and interesting and like twisty and turny. And I loved that. I, I could remember liking it. And I would just copy these poems and just literally like write down the same words. And I remember showing that to a teacher and the teacher was just like, whoa. Oh, did you think it was your own writing? I think she must have known I'd copied it, but it was really, it was really edifying to have an, an adult be really kind of like impressed by my plagiarised words. It's made me think about what Michael said back in season two, episode one. He was also encouraged by his teacher and he started off writing poetry too. What was the first example of rap that you kind of brought into the home? I was too young to buy any music, but my dad had one tape um, which had uh, Rapper's Delight on it. So he had loads of tapes of like funk and soul and jazz and high life and reggae. And then somewhere in there was Rapper's Delight because it was such a massive hit. I think that anyone that liked music in the seventies would have had that, would have had that record. And whenever that tape came on, because I was too young to like dictate what was being played at home, whenever it came on, everything would just stop. And me and my sisters would just listen, you know. And it was a long version, it was like the 14-minute version. So sometimes we'd get all 14 minutes. And I think that that, in, in terms of, like, rap, like, cheesily enough, 
the first big commercial hip hop record was like the one that really like hit me. And after that, it was just a tsunami. Like whenever hip hop in the eighties, it blew up. My sisters were at the age where they were starting to buy records. So I was just like, I was just mainlining rap, rap music throughout my sort of like late childhood. And I suppose that that, that just became part of my sense of self. I copied a lot, so I was always, I was just one of those nerdy kids that if I liked a song, I liked to sort of like see it, mm. and obviously before you could get lyrics anywhere, you had to just listen and learn, so I would just like write down the words that I was hearing mm. the best I could hear them, mm-hmm. so my lyrics were all over the place, but in doing that, I then started to play with, so I, I think it was... It's probably, I don't know, I would like to talk to some more artists actually, but I think it's probably quite a typical route of, you know, paying homage, copying, you know, plagiarising and then putting your own few words in there and then just basically mimicking a style. But I think that's how cultures mm-hmm. grow anyway, you know, just hear something, mimic yeah. it and so on. So I was I was doing that when I was at primary school and I can remember sort of having a little notebook that I picked up from the off license or whatever for 25p or whatever and I'll just write my versions of poems that I'd read and then my versions of lyrics that that, that I'd heard just for myself I, I never showed anyone you know <laughs> I used to do the exact same thing as Michael and Jeffrey I, I would also take poems I liked try and copy the rhyme scheme with my own little stories I had a similar notebook to Jeffrey too how funny we all started out sort of copying the work we liked parroting it, just like Alex on that Glastonbury stage. Okay, so, so here's a question. Um, why, why do so many young people that I, I, I work with, do you think, say that they kind of hate poetry or they don't like poetry, but they also kind of love rap? What, why do they see them as being so separate, do you think? It's not something which kids are invited to think about. Like these are just the same thing. It's the same part of the brain, same part of the cultural world. You know, I think that there's there's probably been an increasing divide between these two things, as rap's become this like commercial behemoth which looks so unacademic, and it's got all the problems of society in it. And poetry's become sort of like um, kind of like uh, neutered into this very austere, very serious, very clean thing that is of the past, like marble, you know, like, like, you know, so I think that as that's happened more and more and more, even kids now would just think like, what are you talking about? Like they're, they're not the same thing, but, but I don't know. It sounds like maybe, maybe, maybe they are. I don't know. Um, spoiler alert. I think both me and Jeffrey feel like they are. I think that's why I, an English teacher, wanted to rap battle and, and why Jeffrey, an English teacher, is so passionate about writing about these lyrics. So, look, we, we both feel that there's merit in rap lyrics, right? Like, and, and they're important and we can get a lot of value and we can learn a lot from them. But but they're not brought into school by teachers, really, are they? Like, they're kind of just brought in by students. Like, rap gets into schools through the students, really, and it's very separate from the poetry that is kind of brought in by by teachers um why do you think that is one of the big things is it's completely misunderstood as a cultural artifact i think a lot of people who have basically been exposed to rap through its latter day mm. maturation as a sort of like commercial 
and capitalist kind of product, that's how a lot of people have seen rap, you know. And you still see it nowadays. Mm. We get adverts and there's like a hip hop yeah. beat in the background and like people going like word and yo and stuff. And it's <laughs> it's just like, it's just so commercial. They've been exposed to that. And so the deeper roots of it, they don't even know it exists, let alone they're ignoring them. So they'd have no idea about the socioeconomic roots of this culture or even going back to that, what mm. it means about the black and Hispanic diaspora in America and how that links even back to traditions of like griots and storytelling and like mm. verbal histories and verbal narratives. When you understand all of that stuff, you see it as the very shiny, valuable, rich object that it really is. Um, mm. And even if you don't understand that stuff, this is where kids' response to hip-hop is really interesting. It's got a it's got a, a kind of richness to it and an authenticity and a realness, to use a, an oft-used phrase, you know, like keep it real, but it's got a realness to it, which speaks volumes to kids who have been presented with a very stale, dead curriculum. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of dead. It's alive. It's the opposite of stale. It's fresh. It's always reinventing itself. And it's very adolescent. You know, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So I feel that it's easy for adults, quote unquote, to dismiss because it seems so adolescent. Mm. It seems like it's eternally, like, obsessed with money and obsessed with masculinity and obsessed with wealth and obsessed with you know, um, looking cool, which is so unfair to blame hip hop for those things because all of those things are in society. Every cultural artifact in society has got those same problems like hyper-masculinity, massive problem Mm. across all of society. Um, Hyper-capitalism and greed, huge problem. Misogyny, massive problem. So these are huge issues in society. Homophobia, like... um, so I hate it when people zero in on hip hop and say that it's somehow more responsible for these things than anything else. Yeah, it does feel a bit lazy, doesn't it? And what I love about a lot of lyrical music, if I want to call it that, is that it's just got this kind of like, it's not aggression because that's the, got the wrong connotations and it's not just like bravado either, but it's this energy. It's it's just like vibrant. It's just like really alive. Like when you're... You, you know, like when you're having a conversation and then someone says something that you really agree or really disagree with, then you actually come alive. Like that's, you know, you're actually in it. And I think that like hip hop and rap lives in that. Like, I can't remember the last time I heard any rap song that the person rapping didn't sound like they, they actually like felt that, you know, like mm. they were saying something with intent and purpose. Whereas a lot of other art, you sort of get a sort of a comfortable wishy-washiness and it's mm. not vital. And mm. I think that when you get that energy, yeah, yeah. it's impossible not to get carried away with it, you know? And then Grimes is mad because, because a lot of it in the earlier days of Grime, they were just like frustrated because they were too young. They were too lyrical for Garage. They were living in a, in a part of the world that was oppressing them in various ways. Just like young people with a lot of energy and a lot of frustration. And that just came out in the lyrics, but the energy, the sounds, you know, some of it wasn't even lyrics. It's just like war cries and, you know, like weird yeah. ad-libs that are just like noises, you know? And I love all that kind of thing because it kind of shakes you by the shoulders a bit. I I went into a whole type with, with that kind of energy and I very quickly realised that that meant it was going to be quite quirky because the minute I got bored with a style, I was just writing another style. 
um, it was going to be almost like a freestyle. That's the energy. You know, when you freestyle rapping and it's like, you you know what about freestyle rapping. You do oh, freestyle rapping. Come on now. Uh, Come nah, on now. Like, honestly, no, my freestyling is awful. Like, I I can do a little bit now, but like, like I honestly, I just embarrass everyone <laughs> by even trying to do it. I only get away with it because the, the battles were kind of in the written context. Okay, okay, okay. Jeffrey sounds a little disappointed at that. Well, he's not the first, and he definitely won't be the last. The real art of freestyle is to get into flow, because, you know, I've done a bit over the years, and when you get into that place where you're in flow, and the energy sort of, like, takes the room, and people are really flowing, and you're not, they're not quite with themselves, you know, it's, 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 a really, it's a really strange place to be, where the thoughts in your head and the words coming out of your mouth are that closely aligned. And you're flowing in the moment. And that's how I wrote Hold Tight. It was like a flourish. It was a 70,000 word flourish. So even when it's getting critical, when it's getting theoretical, even when it's getting difficult, it's basically got this rocket fuel of joy. Jeffrey went on from this to write Blacklisted. The book explores the ways in which people with darker skin are located in language. Instead of tracks, the book looks at different words or phrases that we all in society use to define black people. Here's a sample. Blackness as a racial concept is inherently oppositional. It's a binary truth that only works insofar as being the opposite of white, which means that I've spent the vast majority of my consciousness in a state of conceptual conflict. As a label, it does the important job of confirming something that is already very obvious, that a person who isn't white isn't white. But labels don't just identify what something is, they create meaning. Black is easily the most ubiquitous of all the elements listed in this book, so much so that the assumption is that it is neutral, a given. The terrifying reality is that it is quite possibly the most volatile of all the elements, in that it creates the sharpest contrast to a dominant white other. OK, so how different was it putting out blacklisted to putting out hold tight i was very wary about finishing blacklisted as i got closer towards the end of it i remember having conversations with friends they're like are you sure you want to put this out there because it's almost like all mm. those moments when you're on twitter and you're having those like weird twitter arguments with people that you can't quite see it was almost like putting all of that into one book and throwing it out there and just let and then raising your arms and saying come and get me you know so I had friends that were like genuinely worried saying are you sure you want to put a book out like this now and I think that's why it took me so long to write not it took me so long in terms of how long it took to write because I wrote because I write quite quickly part of it was actually I I I don't think I knew enough until my 30s you know I've been like genuinely researching and understanding race politics in this country is years of work I didn't know half the stuff that I knew when I was 30 than I do now in my late 30s. So I had to do a lot of reading. I like I had to find out stuff because I was never taught it at school. Mm. This stuff is not taught. The books mm. don't even exist half the time because they weren't published by mainstream publishers. So when they're gone, they're gone. So to actually mm. find out what happened from a non a non kind of like white Eurocentric perspective, it's really hard <laughs> to actually find it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, so what would need to change then? Yeah, to, um, to, to get more diverse voices in the curriculum. 
I feel like it's it sounds obvious, but the table and who's at the table is one of the biggest problems. Um, because when people have got a blind spot and they're not even aware that there's a blind spot, you just completely sunk, man. So at the moment, the people who are in charge of, you know, the country who set the agendas, they've got a massive blind spot. So they'll listen to this conversation that we're having now and be like, what? And it's such a big blind spot that I won't even hear what's been said. For those in the at the very apex of power, because it's always about power, who are born into a power paradigm that they didn't create, but they know nothing else. It's asking people to turn off gravity. It's asking people to, to, you know, to um, to turn off the sun. That's the scale of it. It sounds reasonable to reasonable people that are looking towards like a, a positive tu- uh, future, but for people who whose whole existence is to uphold the status quo, and that status quo is inequitable and unfair, it's too scary. It's just, it's a terrifying notion. So until until you get um, a wider representation, I just can't, I can't see it changing at all. The other thing that you can get is the revolution, like the kind of like from the ground up thing, which is kind of happening. Like just today, I saw that Dave is collaborating with David Attenborough. Wow. And it's like, hang on a second so when you think about what dave represents yeah, like yeah. from the ground up you know he's pretty young 20 whatever 21 got into lyricism and now he's being put or he is you know next to an actual national treasure yeah, someone yeah. who is very much of the establishment and they've been put on the same sort of footing you can see that people will listen that's great i guess that we have an appetite for different people from different backgrounds working together and sharing their enthusiasm. But that alone won't fix things. I'm very fond of the metaphor of like gravity because to me, the thing about gravity, which is fascinating, is that it's not a natural force. It's just like this thing that happens because of the mass of the planet and the moon and stuff. But it's so oppressive. Like the idea that we should just be floating around is just wild to me. And that if we're in space, because we are in space, but, you know, we're on a planet, but we should just be floating freely and our bone density would be different and everything else. But we're so used to gravity, we get born into it, that we just think it's fine. Like, it's just cool that we just stand there and get sucked into the ground. It's not cool. And I feel like racism operates in that way, that it's so oppressive, but it's so pervasive and so normalised that it's easy just to wake up and live with it. Is there anything that we can do, like, within education specifically? I think the the first thing is to work really hard to see the situation for what it really is, um, because that information is not being placed in front of teachers. It's not being given to people. You know, if I was in charge of all teacher training on the first day, you'd get given the statistics about who gets excluded and why, who gets failed by system and why, because the system is only as good as it supports its most vulnerable users so i think it's really important to try to find out what is actually happening and are you okay with it like really like try to get into your own blind spot so if you look up at your school and you notice that there aren't any black teachers and you're in the middle of a major city 
ask yourself what is going on there and is that okay or if you're living if if you're working in a school that's got a really strong muslim population but the school doesn't have any signs of that just in the environment are you okay with that um and then beyond that it's the same thing really just listen like really listen because otherwise you're going to be led by your own anxieties and your own stresses and what you've been told to worry about but when you really listen all that stuff falls away i've found it's a less stressful place to be in when you stop listening to yourself and to your own wants you know and your own fears and you start listening to other people because that allows you to then center someone else and if you listen to the kids that you're teaching and their experiences if you listen to the kids even when they're actually especially when they're not playing ball because that's just communicating something and then get over yourself and try to work out what is it they're trying to communicate and then you're in conversation and that's what teaching is it's, a, it's just a conversation you know so yeah I don't know hopefully that'll work <laughs> <laughs> so okay I asked you about this over email and, and, and I'm guessing you've, you've come prepared um could could you recommend um, three tracks, um, UK grime tracks, that if someone doesn't already listen to grime but wants to start listening to it, what would be good tracks to start with? The first one is um, Sitting Here by Dizzy Rascal. It does very perfectly that thing which I think popular music can do really well, which is to comment on a worldview from a marginalised position and to have that from a very young mind that's wise before it should be wise and to be captured like tonally and lyrically so well and in such a mature way just makes that track outstanding. I'm just sitting here, I ain't saying much, I just think and my eyes don't move, left or right they just blink I think too deep and I think too long Plus I think I'm getting weak cause my thoughts are too strong I'm just sitting here, I ain't saying much, I just gaze I'm looking into space while my CD plays I gaze quite a lot, in fact I gaze all day And if I glaze then I just gaze away I blaze Cause it's the same old story, shockers, runners, cats and money stacks It's the same old story, ninja bags, gun fights and scale up same old story, window tints and gloves and fingerprints. Yeah, the same old story. Let's investigate yeah. that area. Cause it was only yesterday. We was playing football in the street. was only yesterday. None of us could ever come to harm. was only yesterday. Life was a touch more sweet. Now I'm sitting here thinking, wagwan, wagwan, there's a reason why Dizzy Rascal won the Mercury and why it's held as a, as a classic album. Because in sitting here, He's just a kid who's on the cusp of an adulthood that is not going to go well for him. And it's a story that plays out for a lot of black kids in this country. Not all, of course. Most of us do all right and end up with mortgages. But for some, you know, when playtime's over and the system has not treated you well, you're sitting there and you're seeing it all and it's not great. And he just talks about what he sees and how he feels about it. And the track is a bit haunting, but a bit nervous and a bit edgy, um, and it's perfect. Skip to like 2011 or 12, and Castles by Skepta. I don't even really want to know how to sing properly, because when you really, really feel the music in your heart, 
that song Castles is again it's really like it's really a commentary on what it means to be a young black man having grown up in Tottenham who is now having to navigate a system that is kind of trying to do away with him you know and everything in that song is introspective but also really critical you know it's got this amazing line um my teacher told me i'm a side man i told her to remember me now she's emailing me asking me to talk to the kids in assembly and it's like yeah that that that's a whole story there you know asking if i can talk to the kids in assembly now man are selling out Wembley Now man the 21st century Statistics say that I should be dead or in jail But shit ain't the way that it's meant to be Breaking the cycle They wish I was trapped in a system Six foot tall black guy like me That would have been a rap in an instant That's why I gotta speak my mind I'ma say how it is and I never say sorry Keep my mouth shut like Winston and Tracy Fam over my dead body Cause I feel like people forget The impact that a, a bad teacher can have Or a system Cause these are just kids like You know Skeptics talking about what it felt like to be a child and to be told he's a sideman, like to be completely buoyed off. It's it's devastating. Like I'm lucky enough I never really had that. I had teachers that were bigging me up for certain reasons, but to be completely marginalised and then he makes his success in a completely other way against all the odds, and then they want him to come and talk to the kids in assembly. And he's like, oh, so it, it's bitter. But it's sad and the whole song's like that he's like asking these little questions to teachers to politicians it's a really really deep song that one and because it's Skepta he just like hits you with these like beautifully simple rhymes just you know nothing flowery nothing complicated just you know couplets tell the story thinking I'm looking at my enemy when I'm looking at my own people notice when a white man looks at my watch I think he's trying to pay me a compliment when a black man looks at my watch I think he's trying to knock my confidence I was in Amsterdam smoking blue cheese and I had an epiphany all these negative preconceptions just bring more negativity instead of investing in new businesses they buy new artillery everybody in the hood want to spray a 16 and I don't mean lyrically and then the last one is um 101 FM by Little Sims That's where she talks about growing up in 21st century London and how actually in many ways it's not that dissimilar to the London that Dizzy Rascal was talking about or even the London of the 90s where there's still deprivation, there's still economic decay, there's still crime, there's still poverty, but there's still joy. That when me and Avelino used to make tracks Living down in the LDN and Nens is mad and a whole family in the same damn flat. Eve trying to get a salary work. I don't have any shots in the cats. Ships on a Friday pulling up a J-Bob's gas. Tutu gal getting moved by Tutu man. Come off the decks if you can't mix, it's not happening. More time gunshots in the air like bat, 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 man. Book smart with the bars, but I never learned that from school. She's talking about parties, she's talking about hanging out, she's talking about people honing their skills as lyricists. And I love that track because also she's she's a she as well, you know, which I think is really important that a lot of black youth culture is kind of, you know, because of the problems of society that I talked about, it's like very masculine and very hyper-masculinized, but actually there is, there's a lot more texture to it. And Little Sims talks about her perspective as a young woman and before that a girl growing up in that environment 
and how that she wasn't just the object of male desire or having to navigate hypermasculinity, but she was also doing the creative thing, she was doing the street thing, she was being around people. And again, she's just like explaining her worldview in a really, really kind of like mature, but still quite adolescent way. After the call, I set up the three tracks and I listened to them a couple of times each, reading the lyrics at the same time. Each track gives me something to think about. There's the way a young Dizzy tugs at the threads of the world that he lives in. The sceptre's assertiveness, the understanding, self-belief in his status within the wider world. And finally, there's how Little Sims embraces her experiences and the environment that made her. A few days later, I wake up and find out that an unarmed man, a black man, George Floyd, has been murdered by an American police officer outside a shop in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Police officer knelt on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, whilst two fellow officers stood by and did nothing to stop him. That's with George Floyd having told them over 20 times that he couldn't breathe. There's been a ton of these incidents in the US. So many in the past few years. Eric Brown, Tamir Rice, Alton Sterling, Philando Castle, Stephen Clark, Breonna Taylor, to name just a few, and now George Floyd. The following weekend, my wife Lucy and I prepared ourselves to head out for the Black Lives Matter rally in Peterborough City Centre. It'd be the first time that we head into the city centre since the pandemic started. As we walked in, immediately, the city centre looked and felt weird. Not total dystopia, but still dead, really. No cars. There were less people about than I'd ever seen on a Saturday. With no traffic, those that were about were mostly walking on the road. As we got to the edge of the centre, we heard the demonstration. About 400 or 500 people facing the central sort of medieval bandstand. On the bandstand, there were about 20 people surrounded by banners and flags with anti-racist messages. Someone was talking to the crowd through a megaphone. People in the square were repeating, no justice, no peace. Everyone, it seemed, was wearing a mask. Over the next couple of hours, we listened to poetry and speeches from where we stood. and We listened to community leaders, artists, school children and counsellors. During all of this, we were given lots of opportunities to be still and to think. I thought about my conversation with Jeffrey and that gravity that he talked about. All the things I didn't challenge or didn't push back on enough about the unfair advantages that I had, all the moments that I might have been complicit in racism. I also wondered whether this podcast could have been handled better, whether there were moments in past episodes where I concentrated too much on the craft of writing rap and not enough on the stories being told through the rap. I thought about what Inja told me in season one, episode four of this series. Brother, I was told when I was at school, you're not gonna become anything because you're black and you're from Luton. Fuck off. That's what teachers told me, bare face. It still makes me so angry that that could happen to a child. And look, I'm sure many would argue that these things Inja's experiences at school, my viral success, Alex's moment of fame, 
and George Floyd's murder. They're all completely separate, unrelated incidents. But there's a gravity at play on all of us that pushes and pulls. I still have so much to learn. Next time on Mark Can't Rap. Your rap name is Codswallop and your real name is Ryan Wammond. You're about as gully as Brian Adams. Most people were into Michael Jackson because they liked his dancing. You just admired his passion for child harassment. My problem was that I couldn't focus. Like, I feel like I've got ADHD or something and I'd stay in there for a few months and then they'd realise I was intelligent, put me in all the top sets and then I'd last about a week. what we just saw right here, man. I have no words, sir. This episode of Mark Can't Rap was written and narrated by me, Mark Grist. It featured an interview with Jeffrey Bocci, script editing by Ross Sutherland, and audio editing and production by Juxta. This podcast was supported using public funding from Arts Council England. Thanks for listening. <laughs>